0: High-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to this week in Retro for the week of January 25th.
1: Coming up on today's show: a Frankenstein in 64 controller, the Amiga 2200 caught on camera, a new C64 RPG, and Turbo Sprint. All this and more on this week in Retro up-to-date news for out of date tech now before we get started john with our first story i think we should probably let the listeners know that um we've also got a video version now on youtube of this week in retro we've had the audio version of the show uh, since the beginning but now we've got cameras lighting we've, we've got a real show it almost is starting <laughs> to look professional <laughs> John. and uh we've also got on board a fantastic video producer by the name of duncan styles who's overlaying some graphics and video over our ugly mugs so you can see what we're talking about as we go so thank you so much for coming on board duncan of course if you want to listen to the audio version of the show that will continue forever that's not going to change and you won't miss anything i think if there's ever a point where we actually have um, anything to hold up and show here we'll always give an audio description It won't happen often and you won't miss out. So um, if you're curious about uh, what something looks like, uh, uh, you know, when you're listening to us in the car, then do check the YouTube version and uh, satiate your curiosity. All right, on to the first story then, John.
0: All right, Neil. Neil, we've covered some weird and wacky stuff on this show before, but I think this week's entry may take the cake. Recall in your mind, Neil, if you will, the Nintendo 64 controller. Uh, When this thing launched in 1996 or 1997, depending on where you live, uh, it sported one of the strangest controller designs of all time. Uh, I've always thought of it as a kind of reverse trident. You know, a three-pronged pitchfork that allowed the player to grasp the left side of the stick to use the cross-shaped D-pad. Or, for modern 3D games like uh, Super Mario 64, uh, players could wrap their hand around the middle for the analog stick. Remember, this is before the DualShock, and it's really more than a decade since an analog stick had graced the console scene. So the rules weren't really set in stone yet about what controllers should look like. Neil, what were your initial thoughts when you saw the N64 controller for yourself back in the day?
1: Uh, My initial thoughts, I remember when I first saw a picture of it, I thought, great, an analog stick. As a PC gamer I was familiar with the advantages that that would bring and I was a pretty early adopter of the N64 I went out and got one as soon as I had the money to afford one it was very early days in the release in the UK at least it had been out for over a year elsewhere and if there was ever a game that was made for a controller it was Mario 64 that's the game that I got with the system. They were just great. They just went together so perfectly. And I think that also applied to most of Nintendo's first-party titles for the platform. I remember games like Wave Race being really great with that controller. And um, Ocarina of Time I got on really well with. And a little later, I got the Rumble Pack. Do you remember that used to slot in to give you a nice bit of extra feedback? That was a cool add-on, especially with Goldeneye. Yeah, it doubled as a memory card, too,
0: I believe, didn't it?
1: is that right I can't remember now I really can't I think maybe there
0: were some that were discrete rumble only and then there were some that combined both of them but I remember everything just fitting into the top of the controller in a really neat way
1: yeah yeah and it didn't it didn't unbalance it or anything like that it it felt good even with the rumble pack in there but um you know I I think the best testimonial for the controller that I can provide really is something I've mentioned on the show before is just how into the game GoldenEye my, my dad was he he wasn't a gamer He got massively into it. I I played through Goldeneye, and I've got to say that I had no problems with precision. It's a game that needed a good element of precision to get those headshots, especially when you had multiple enemies coming in at the same time. And he managed to play through Goldeneye on every difficulty level using that controller, all the way through to the hardest level. So I think that tells (laughs) you something about it, that as a non-gamer, he could pick up that controller and he could play through that. So um, I know that this controller gets a lot of flack, because controller design has moved on so much since then. And I do struggle a little bit when I pick up an original N64 controller now. But give me enough time and I think I'd be okay with it again. So I, I'm not a hater, John. I'm not a hater. I'm willing to cut this some slack.
0: Well, as weird as that controller looks, uh, from just from a looks perspective, things are about to get a lot weirder. Uh, there's a YouTuber named Stop Skeletons From Fighting. And he has uncovered get ready for this neil a dual analog version of the controller with four count them four handles <laughs> so so picture in your mind the handles on the outside which still give you control over the d-pad and the face buttons but the inside two sticks both sport the same analog sticks and rear trigger okay now before before we go any further i should say this is a hundred percent custom job the controller was never commercially released. Somebody somebody made this thing but it it,
1: it looks pretty good a cut and shut i think we call it in the car industry (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah it does look like it's been to a chop shop that's that's (laughs) true so why would you want this uh well it it turns out that there were several games that actually gave you the option to use two analog sticks on the n64 which i totally didn't know uh goldeneye your beloved goldeneye gave you a two analog stick solution uh star wars episode one pod racer and one of your favorite franchises neil robotron it's n64 version, Robotron 3D also had this control option. Now, for your normal folk, uh, this alternative control style was accomplished by just plugging in two controllers and placing them in either hand. But I've got to admit, there's something really cool and just a little bit disturbing (laughs) to me about seeing a dual analog N64 stick. I know there's a lot of people that like to hate on the N64 controller. They say that the yellow C buttons are too small. They say the analog stick isn't accurate enough and so on. But as far as actual comfort goes, as far as the way that the, the controller sits in your hand... I think that for the time when it was released, it was actually the most comfortable controller on the market. Uh, it seemed to be made for more adult hands than what we'd seen, you know, in the past in terms of controllers just being a little bit tiny. So, Neil, in terms of controller ergonomics, I want to know what you think. What are what are some of your highlights and lowlights over the years?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. It, it wasn't an uncomfortable controller to use. I'm trying to remember now. You know, there was all the talk when the Xbox came out about how we had the Duke controller, yeah. and it was huge. slightly bigger over here mm-hmm. for us than it was over in Japan. The N64 mm-hmm. controller, as far as I remember, it was the same size in all regions, wasn't it? I don't. I yes, don't it, was, it was. It was. Being different. Yeah, yeah. But for my man-sized hands at the time, it was it was absolutely fine, very comfortable. But um, in the early days. It wasn't about if a controller was comfortable for me. It, it wasn't about the ergonomics at all. It was about how long it would actually survive. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, after breaking far too many quickshot turbos on my Amstrad, I switched to joysticks like the Conic Navigator. I don't know if you've seen that one. Is that, so, is that
0: similar to the Conic Speed King or the Epic XJ5000 yeah. as we
1: got it in the United States? exactly so the speed king sits flat in your hand but the mm-hmm. conix navigator has um, a handle it's more like okay. holding a pistol but I you still have the little joystick on the top so mm. you had a, a fire button on your trigger finger and then a, a really short throw stick on the top which you operated with your other hand and um, that was a good choice for me because it was really hard to break that short throw stick <laughs> so uh, <laughs> maybe that's why i didn't have a problem with the n64 controller because it's it's kind of similar with that you know you hold the the grip in the middle with that the, there was the analog trigger button on the n64 controller as well right I don't know. right i don't know maybe but if i had to pick a highlight i'd go with my old say x45 hot ass controller that's hands-on throttle and stick um which was a, a flight stick and throttle which i loved using when i had a lot more spare time than i do now for flight sims because they're very time intensive games to play And the low light was probably something called the Freewheel Steering Wheel by Logic 3. So uh, I used to play a lot of Jeff Graham's F1 GP on the Amiga. And this was a steering wheel that had no base. You you, you held it up. It was floating in the air. And uh, I didn't have the foot pedals. You could buy foot pedals for it, but I didn't have them. So to accelerate, you tilt the whole steering wheel forward. Uh, to break, you tilt it back and and you steer left and right obviously so if you were going flat out and trying to steer the whole steering wheel would be flat oh my gosh and it it was just like driving a bus you know it completely yeah yeah ruined the illusion of being a formula one driver there, there's not too
0: there's not too many f1 drivers with that bus you know steering wheel
1: <laughs> It well, might be quite popular now with, with the old uh, truck driving simulators that so many yeah, people Yeah, that's in. true. You would have been you
0: would have been ahead of the curve with Euro Truck Simulator, <laughs> for sure. Um, so if you're interested in seeing this Frankenstein N64 controller for yourself, uh, I think this might have been a one and done project. So your best bet is to check out the Stop Skeletons from Fighting YouTube channel. Uh, a big thank you to our subreddit user Devolution for suggesting this story to us.
1: John, you're an Amiga guy. You're a big Amiga guy. I know you are. You know your A500 from your A500 plus. Your your OCS from your ECS. But are you familiar with the Amiga 2200? Um,
0: no, no. <laughs> I'm not. I I got to be honest with you, Neil. I barely know what a 2000 is. Uh, the the big box Amigas, aside from my beloved A1000, have always been a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, I know people did things besides play games on their Amigas. But that is something that's totally outside of my wheelhouse. You know, me and all of, all of my my buddies around here, we were big Amiga gamers. Uh, and uh, we were not big doing useful things with our time people. <laughs> so uh, the, the big box Amigas never really made an appearance. Uh, so at 2200, I am not familiar
1: with it. Tell me about it. Right. So you, like me, we never really veered into the productivity side of yes. the ownership. <laughs> it was all about the gaming. And I doubt many people are familiar with the Amiga 2200 or 2200, including me, until I read up on it, having seen photos of this machine, uh, which appeared on the website, The Big Book of Amiga Hardware. And this was prompted by a story I read on the website vintageisthenewold.com. So thank you to them for highlighting it. Now, in the images of this Amiga, you'll see an Amiga motherboard and riser card with the Zorro expansion slots. Uh, nothing unusual about that in a big box Amiga. It has a Motorola 68020 CPU with an accompanying maths coprocessor. It's got one meg of chip RAM and it's got SIM slots so you can slot in additional RAM and also a CPU slot, very much like the later Amiga 4000. So although the CPU is soldered onto the board, you can, you can slot in and upgrade very easily. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it wasn't a pipe dream and it wasn't a prototype. The Amiga 2200 was completed to a production standard. It was ready to roll off the production line at the push of a button. It was designed to sit between the low-cost Amiga 500 and the flagship Amiga 3000 machine. That one came out in, I think it was 1990 or 91, I think the 3000, so it was around about that period. So the 2200 was a balance of performance and price to sit between those two computers. Uh, It was for those who wanted a big box Amiga and all the expansion capabilities that gave you that, but without the full price of the 3000s. So it's an -hmm. interesting little machine, I think there was probably a market for it sitting in that sweet spot between the two. And Commodore had this strange system. So what they would do is they would create a product, their R&D departments would come up with something like this, and then you had the regional Commodore divisions who would order what products they wanted to stock for their region. And none of them did. (laughs) So this computer was ready, but nobody ordered it. They just couldn't see a demand for it in their regions. Uh, They they, they didn't see any reason to, to stock it or have it. Although it appears that wasn't strictly the case because at least one person has managed to buy one. They managed to pick one up at a trade show back in the day, hence this example that's that's shown up out in the wild. The spec itself was nice, but um, you know, it really was existing Amiga tech reconfigured to go into a different mm-hmm. package. So it didn't bring a new graphics chipset. It didn't bring enhanced audio or anything like that. So I don't feel like we missed out massively by not seeing this Amiga, but it did leave a legacy because the case that was made for it went on to be used for the Amiga 4000. So. If you know a 4000, you know exactly what this Amiga would have looked like in the same case. And you can indeed drop, and they have dropped this Amiga 2200 into a 4000 case, used the 4000 power supply, plugged it in, and it booted right up and worked. So, um, yeah, an interesting curiosity from the Amiga range, I think. John, would you, would you have taken a look at this, John? Um, is there anything about this machine that stands out for you compared to the other models or is it just a, a bit of a curiosity for you like like it is for me? Well, I, I do have to say I
0: love this story because the fact that they actually made a couple of these just to kind of sell at trade shows to gauge interest is something that you'd never see a you know computer company these days do this was really the wild west days of you know computers being put together and, and and sold without any kind of market research or any kind of you know spinning up manufacturing i'm not even sure what the logistics are like of making you know a couple of these things just to kind of sell around and i wonder if they did make more of these that are uh that, that ended up getting destroyed or like you said repurposed for four thousand so that that maybe that's that's a story for another time when somebody figures that out but the whole thing the whole kind of concept of making a uh, you know a third amiga line that is a balance of price and performance it reminds me of, of what apple did not not today's apple but the apple of the early to mid 90s uh, as you know from your recent video neil uh, apple was doing everything it could during that time period to stay afloat uh, during those rough years including releasing a dizzying array of computers not even counting the clones i'm talking about this is before the days they had a million different models and they all had different there were different product lines there was the Performa line the LC line and they were all more or less the same thing they were all 68,000 processors they just had different RAM and CPU configurations Uh, this is always a horrible idea from a business perspective and it's kind of like what the 2200 is you know if this had come out in in mass all it would have done was made the consumer decision more difficult I think that that possibly more than any other computer in history, the Amiga market was very clearly defined. On the one hand, you had gamers who weren't interested in Zorro slots or other types of expandability. Uh, They they just wanted to play games, and they, they wanted a machine that could play all the best games. And then on the other hand, you had the productivity user and uh you know if we use the the modern apple parlance you might call them the pro user uh who was using the amiga for you know rendering or other types of video work maybe audio work uh, i think a better move for the market would be to leave the 3000 to the professionals and really double down on that other segment of the market create a, t- a true gaming centric successor to the a5000 basically if they would have released the amiga 600 you know, in the late 90s instead of when they did, uh, it would have been a much bigger hit because it would have catered to that gamer market, you know, a smaller package, a lower price point with component out, you know, you didn't have to have an RGB monitor, all of those things. But of course, that's not what they did.
1: Yeah, so you said that the Amiga 600... In the late 90s. Did you mean the late 80s? Oh, the late 80s. To, the late 80s. Like the late that, 90s, like, it would have been 80s. even worse than <laughs> what they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. It would have been nice to see that. And also, you know, we had these anomalies over here, like we had the Amiga 1500 only in the UK, which was right. created by Commodore to, to take on the Checkmate case. That's a whole nother story. So you could have very easily picked up that or an Amiga 2000. And chucked in an accelerator for a pretty good price by the early 90s um, and and achieved exactly the same thing as the Amiga 2200 albeit in a slightly larger case so I'm not surprised that that it wasn't bought up but um, you know if you want to take a look at it for no other reason than to expand your knowledge on the Amiga range and to add the 2200 to your mental Rolodex for uh, future pub quizzes then you'll find the link in the show notes now Neil As we all know, there
0: are as many definitions of the role-playing game genre as there are stars in the sky. Uh, To some people, the genre is typified by first-person, stat-grinding dungeon crawlers like Wizardry or The Bard's Tale. Uh, Other people will always associate the genre with uh, the epic adventures of rune translation, found in the ultimate games and there are also those out there who think that zelda games are rpgs but those people are clearly out of their minds Uh, for me personally role-playing games are completely intertwined with the classic dragon quest and final fantasy series released by enix and square in the 80s and 90s before they merged to become the ultimate jrpg voltron square enix neil what are role-playing games to you
1: Well, uh, you know, role playing games come up quite often on this show and I think I've banged on enough about my love of Ultima games in the past. (laughs) So I'm going to refrain from talking about Ultima. I'm going to try to anyway. Uh, So some other RPGs that I've really loved include uh, Captive, Hired Guns. Hired Guns was a great one because you controlled all four of your party at once on a split screen. So that was Mm -hmm. really nice. Um, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark the the, the adventure not the arcade game oh yeah racy (laughs) all of those games were first person they were flick screen dungeon crawler style engines although they weren't all based in dungeons elvira was based in a castle and and that one actually had an incredibly eerie atmosphere it's a game that really gave me the creeps up there with um dark seed between elvira Mm. and dark seed oh i could really get myself in a state on a dark night (laughs) (laughs) um i did go on to love zelda from the n64 era i know you you're not classing this as an rpg but uh i think it's i think it is i think it is and um it wasn't until i owned an n64 as i mentioned earlier i bought one pretty early on that, that i had the time to play zelda because zelda wasn't and, and rpgs in general they're not really games that you go around to your friend's house to play uh no. in, unless it's that friend that makes you sit and watch them playing oh, you yeah. tend not to get to that's play always to a yourself. blast <laughs> <laughs> And then later we moved into that era of massively multi-player online RPGs and that brought a huge amount more elements to the genre. And you're right, the scope of what can be an RPG is really, really wide. An RPG, it can be so many things, it can be in so many settings and eras and it can be presented in so many different styles. So I guess what it boils down to in its most basic form an RPG, it's got to have a stat, based, a stat based gameplay mechanic, which harks back, I think, to, to, to the tabletop gaming origins of these games. It's got to have a rich storyline. It's got to have a world to explore that feels like it's a, a living, breathing world and, and not just a static one. And that world shouldn't be centered around you, it should go on regardless of what you're doing. Um, it's got to be a place to explore. It's got to be a place to unwrap its mysteries, usually through a series of quests. I think that's the simplest way I could explain, explain what I think an RPG is, John. Just those basic elements and, and you're off, you're away in mm-hmm. this living, breathing I, world. I, I,
0: I would agree with all of that, absolutely. Good, good.
1: Uh, I know you lean more towards the Japanese or JRPGs. Is that right, John?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, JRPGs, specifically Final Fantasy for the original Nintendo, uh, was my true first love in video games. I'd played video games for years, before final fantasy but that was really what made me fall in love with video
1: games as a medium hang on hang on john so i have stopped myself from banging on about ultima because i always talk about it but here you go with the final fantasy again i know i know i know every episode every episode i'm sorry i will put a moratorium on a final fantasy
0: after this so You know but this is the first game that i really felt like i was taking part in a quest like me you know me uh and i think that that's, that's a similar sentiment to anybody who really gets into rpgs no matter what region they came from you know you feel like you are the adventurer and you are saving the world Um, In a good role-playing game, the world is fleshed out in such a way that you you didn't find really in any other genre of that time. You know, when I was playing Super Mario Brothers, I wasn't really thinking about, well, you know, what's what's Princess Toadstool doing when she's just waiting around for me to rescue her the whole time? The, The world isn't really explained in that kind of a way. Um, another thing that pulled me into Final Fantasy, and also, and this goes for every JRPG, is the music. Uh, up until this point, I hadn't really paid attention to the music in games because it was, not, you know, either non-existent on the the Atari computer or very rudimentary in, in some of the the you know the early Nintendo games. But in Final Fantasy, there were twenty-one. 21 fully realized tunes that's pretty incredible for a game released in 1987 uh, so that 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 was really really impressive to me, um, but you know one of the defining features of of Japanese role-playing games is that they tended to only play on one side of the fence you could only really find them on consoles now that wasn't that wasn't reciprocal uh, there were uh, there were lots of ports over to the consoles from computers uh, some Western RPGs like Ultima 3 4 & 5 all got uh, NES releases the Bard's Tale made it over to the NES but uh, the Classic 8-bit computers like the C64 uh, didn't get much JRPG action. Well, that is about to change, Neil, I'm happy to say. Uh, As indie retro computer development continues to mature, things are finally changing. Uh, Sarah Jane Avery, an ex-SEGA developer, and also I believe from Core Designs, is currently working on a new Commodore 64 game called The Briley Witch Chronicles that are based on the series of novels that she's written of the same title. Uh, She's released a half-hour gameplay demo of this game, and I've got to say, it really looks impressive to a JRPG fan like I am. Um, All of the hallmarks of why I love this genre are here. You've got fantastic music. Uh, The game promises a wide variety of locales to discover with plenty of people to talk to, NPCs aplenty, uh, the full gambit of spells, weapons, and armor. There's even a crafting element where you can mix potions together. So, um... Just like Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest, the exploration is done from a top-down perspective, and when you shift into battle mode, you go into that familiar side-on look of classic Final Fantasy games where the the battles uh, play out with turn-based attacks. So, Neil, I know this isn't the type of role-playing game that you grew up with, but are you willing to give this particular spin on it a try since it's coming out for the C64?
1: Yes, absolutely, John, I really am because, uh, primarily because of who made it. Sarah Jane Avery has a rich history in video game development and also the fact that she wrote the books that are the background to this series. I mean, who better to flesh out a rich and detailed role playing world than the person who wrote the books, you know. She must have so many notes and ideas behind the scenes having written those books that can feed into the game. So that's wonderful. She worked on titles such as Jaguar XJ220, that would have been at Core, who you mentioned, on the Amiga. Um, She ported the arcade shooter Gemini Wing over to the Amiga as well. She worked on Thunderhawk, the Thunderhawk series of games, Fighting Force on the PS1, All, all sorts of great games. So... Um, and recently also she gave us Neutron on the C64, which is a, uh, a shmup that takes advantage of all the things that make the C64 great. Smooth scrolling, hardware-assisted sprites, the, the lovely SID chip music, all of that. Great, those great things. So to say she has previous would be a huge understatement. <laughs> and it's just wonderful yeah. that a coder with such credentials, you know, has chosen to spend their time catering to our retro hobby. It, it, it's like... It's like a triple A developer has started sending us new game releases, you know, through a time machine from nineteen nineteen eighty six or or whenever the mid eighties, John. And mm-hmm. I hope that she gets all of the, the the support that she deserves to encourage her to keep making games for us because it's just great that she is. So I'm on board. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I am super excited about this. Uh, I hope that you'll be able to play this on real hardware. Uh, one of my most recent acquisitions is one of those SDIEC floppy emulators uh, from the future. Was eight bit on the C for the C sixty four. So I'd love to put this on the uh, the SD card and give it a spin on real hardware. Miss um, Avery estimates that the Briley Witch Chronicles will be released sometime in the first half
1: of twenty twenty one. Atari's Super Sprint is a stone-cold classic arcade cabinet, even if you didn't have 10p. Yes, 10p and not one of those odd things John calls a quarter. Even if you didn't have one of those to buy your credits uh to play a game you just couldn't help but spin the steering wheels as you walked past the cabinet it was it was such an attractive cabinet and a great game
0: yeah and those those wheels they were free spinning wheels it wasn't like the pole position wheel that they had a little bit of giving them. I mean, you could really take those things to task when you when you walk <laughs> by in the arcade
1: yes yeah the phrase we would use over here is wang you you could wang those wheels <laughs> and they would spin i think it has a different meaning over there for you but um yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, the game i think we're all familiar with the game um you had a bird's eye view of the racetrack a single static screen you know on, on the biggest cabinet you had three of those big old steering wheels on there with no force back or force feedback no friction as you mentioned they just span freely and you would stand shoulder to shoulder with your friends chucking your race car around the track it really was a great gaming experience and one that many companies tried to replicate on home systems later on um and i think there was an earlier game, earlier game which was just called sprint which was a very basic affair in the 70s just very yeah. black and white dots it was black like and the, white right like the pong of racing games so mm-hmm. you know super sprint evolved from that game John, were you a fan of the top down or the nearly top down single screen races like Super Sprint? Neil, I love these types
0: of games. Uh, And I'm glad that you mentioned the single screen subcategory. Putting the whole track on the screen makes gameplay much different than a scrolling top down game like Micro Machines. Uh, In this genre, I'd say that Super Off-Road is a perennial favorite for me. Uh, and just this past week, I was actually playing a uh, top-down single-screen racer called 8-Bit Slicks. This is a newish Atari 8-bit conversion of the 90s DOS game, Slicks and Slide, which features a bunch of great tracks and even online play with the uh, with the Fujinet adapter. So, uh, yeah, I love these games. They're the ultimate party games, in my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. Ivan Iron Man Stewart, super afraid, wasn't it? I, That's I right. Would, I, I'd have no idea who that guy was if it wasn't for the video game, but his his name yeah. is etched on my mind forever now. That's most
0: of the, most of the time, the uh, you know the the person brings notoriety to the game, but I think in this case it was the other way around.
1: <laughs> for sure, for sure. And Slicks and Slide, you mentioned. I played that to death with my friend JP back on his PC uh, back in the day. That was great fun. It, it, it had pretty simplistic graphics. I think that was about '93. Slicks and Slide came out, but despite the simple graphics, it had that super sprint gameplay mechanic, which which came across and it felt great when you strung lots of clean corners together and it got you just frustrated enough when you hit a wall without putting you completely out of the race that some of these games didn't get that mechanic quite right and you'd hit a wall and that was it you'd put back too far to have any hope of catching up again so you you had to get that balance just right and um an earlier one that I played on my trusty Amstrad CPC was Grand Prix Simulator mm. uh, or Grand Prix Simulator as my brother used to call it from uh, <laughs> from Code which was uh, it was also on the ZX Spectrum and lots of other 8-bit micros. I don't know if you've covered this one on your show before John have you have you covered Grand Prix Simulator? We haven't
0: we haven't done this one on Arsène Claire. I did play BMX Simulator uh, the other right. day though and and that I I imagine it's a very similar title just with a different mode of transportation.
1: Very similar, and I'll tell you why because um beside uh, aside from being a pretty fun game to play and it was multiplayer, so it captured that supersprint feel, it was released on the home micros before a licensed version of Super Sprint had made it to market. Supersprint hit in the arcades in 1986, so uh, we're talking a little bit after that and um, it was Activision who tried to sue Codemasters because they had the license to port Atari Supersprint for the home however codemasters got away scot-free from this attempt to sue them because of that game that you just mentioned bmx simulator Oh wow! (laughs) yeah yeah so they were able to point at that and say well we made this game is exactly the same we just swapped the bicycles for for formula one cars what are you going to do about it and of course they got away with it so um yeah yeah Uh, clearly clearly bmx simulator was inspired by the by super sprint and those type games um Mm -hmm. We've had Badlands. Do you remember Badlands? That was... I never
0: played Badlands
1: before. That sounds, oh, okay. sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's it's sort of super sprint in a dystopian Mad Max style wasteland. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's good fun. It's good fun. But um, yeah, Codemasters went away laughing into the sunset having got away with that. And do you know what they did next? They sued alternative software for making a racing game like theirs. <laughs> so, uh, so live and let live, Codemasters. Codemasters well never afraid
0: from the legislation through their whole their whole history.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but why are we talking about these games? Well, um, it's because the Amiga, another Amiga story, John. This is a good week this week. It's getting a a new port of Super Sprint from developer Graham Carey, who was also responsible for the recent Amiga port of Rygar. Graham has more than demonstrated his talents for creating these ports, which he makes available digitally, but also in some wonderfully high quality boxed editions. And I do have my own copy of a boxed edition here. If you're listening, I'm not holding it up because I don't have it at the desk here, but I can I can assure you no expense has been spared on the packaging. It really is a lovely thing to own. Now, the Amiga did get a port of Super Sprint in 1992, but what Graham tends to do when he ports games to the Amiga is he, he ports them to the Amiga 1200. So we do mm-hmm. get to enjoy a little bit more power. We get that wider color palette, although I imagine the color palette of Super Sprint was pretty limited back in the day,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but a wider palette available to him than the A500 games. And, um, yeah, there's there's really no reason why an A1200 shouldn't be able to give this an arcade perfect port, I think, of the 1986 games in the right hands. And I've no doubt that Graham has the right hands to make this happen. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing this and, and watching his progress. You know, it's coming along great. He's ripped the sprites from the original arcade game because, of course, you can just... Get the ROMs. You can fire it up in MAME, or you can make tools to rip the art so much more easily now. Yeah. Um, there, there are so many stories back in the day of ports with developers with tracing paper on the arcade mm-hmm. machine screen. You know, trying to replicate that. None of that. Yeah, we 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 now. tend
0: to forget. We tend to forget that uh, back in the day, it's, it wasn't as if the arcade operators were bending over backwards to give uh, these these uh, coders the resources to make a quality port of their game. In a lot of cases, they had to go to the arcades themselves and plot these these sprites out on graph paper or, like you said, with tracing paper. So we, we've definitely come a long way since. Yeah,
1: that. yeah. So many stories like that. So that really helps for the development of a game like this, Graham. Not really needing a, an artist to help him, he can just rip those sprites. So, um, John, if, if you could ask this clearly very talented developer in Graham to, uh, to port a game to the Amiga that was badly ported or never ported, what game would you ask him for?
0: <laughs> I, I think you may know where I'm going with this one, Neil. Uh, there is one game that stands head and shoulders above all of the bad arcade ports on the Amiga. That's right. I'm talking about U.S. Gold Presents. <laughs> Outrun, Neil. That's a really Outrun. good impression. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, It's hard to imagine a worse port, really, (laughs) of any game (laughs) on any system. And the fact that it made its infamous appearance on our beloved Amiga continues to rankle all these years later. Uh, There was a proof of concept demo, you might remember, that made an appearance a couple years back called Bonus Stage Number 75. And this showed a scrolling racetrack at about 50 frames per second. Sort of looked like a, a hang on type demo. And this was running on an ECS OCS Amiga. So I believe that somebody out there somewhere has the jack to get this project off the ground and turn that demo into a fully fleshed out game. Um, what about you, Neil? Do you have an Arca- Amiga arcade port wish list?
1: Um, well, it's not really a list, but yeah, I've got a few in my head and and yes, that outrun port was terrible. You know, <laughs> I, I, could have, I could have forgiven it for running it a little bit slowly or for not having the, the music. But if you play this game, this outrun port on the Amiga, the perspective isn't even right. It's, it's yeah. not even at the right angle. It's a totally different game. We could talk all day about it,
0: it, it. I, the, the worst The worst offense is the fact that the, the picture on the back of the box you know, that, that is supposed to show you the game, it does come from the game. It's the title screen of the game, but then the actual in-game engine is totally different and yeah. just horrible.
1: Yeah, the title screen is just a screenshot of the arcade, and, the, and then it goes into a completely <laughs> different game. <laughs> Terrible they knew what they were doing at us gold they and, did. Uh, yeah, but there is also other options to, to play it on the amiga there's the cannonball engine so mm-hmm. you can play outrun on the amiga with that but it needs some serious power we're talking an 060 or a vampire to enjoy right. that port on the amiga so i'm interested to see uh that one that you mentioned what was it called there the um bonus stage number 75 right i'm gonna look that up after the show because i've not seen that one myself but um yeah, one game that I tweeted about a while back, which I'd love to see um, ported better on the Amiga, is Rolling Thunder, which is a, a really highly stylized side-scrolling game. It's got really nice comic book characters in it. It's one of those games that it, it just feels cool to play. You know, you feel cooler standing there playing yeah, on the, it.
0: Yeah, the Rolling Thunder is one of my favorite games. I love it.
1: Oh, it is? Okay, okay. And have you played the Amiga port?
0: No. We haven't right. covered that on Amigos yet. I'm surprised,
1: actually. Oh, I'd like to see that episode. Because uh, on the Amiga port, in my opinion, it just it loses all of its charm. Mm. It's squashed down and presented in this tiny window. It seems to have far fewer frames of animation than the arcade, which is understandable, but it just loses the flow and it loses the charm that comes with that comic book animation. Right. just doesn't sit right with me. And um, I'd love to see that game done some justice on the Amiga, but... Graham himself, uh the developer of this new uh, Super Sprint port, he popped up in my tweet replies and said, "You know what?" He said, "Yes, it's bad, but there are technical reasons behind the mechanics of Rolling Thunder um that prevent it from working on the Amiga in ways far beyond the graphical presentation." And he says it would be very tricky to pull it off. I think it's to do with the way the characters can go um you've got the different platforms that you can jump up on and then he used the phrase behind the fence so i think that's going into the doors yeah uh, the the different um bits of scenery that appear in front of the character i do sense that i can see end. that but yeah to him there are technical reasons why it couldn't be done better and it was done on an amiga 500 with half a meg of ram so a stock amiga 500 so tricky perhaps you know i'd love to see him pull off one of his amiga 1200 ports of it perhaps to really mm-hmm. do it justice but um if graham says it's tricky then it's tricky i'm not in a position to argue <laughs> <laughs> so if you'd like to find out more about this new super sprint port uh, i think it's called turbo sprint um, for the amiga then check out the show notes and hopefully who knows maybe we can get together and enjoy a, a three-player battle here on the racetrack Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash thisweekinretro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash thisweekinretro to put a tip in the jar.
0: Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.